welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki McDonald. This week, I sit down with Cheryl Platts, and we talk about the challenges of working on a top-secret design project, the research behind Amazon's Echo Look, the skills you need to start designing for voice, and how studying improv can make you a better designer. Enjoy the show. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for being a guest on our show today. It's a pleasure to be here, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me. You know, when we first met in February at the Interaction Conference, you were giving a workshop on designing for voice interaction. And we talked a little bit about your experience as a product designer at Amazon, but you couldn't talk about the project you've been working on because it hadn't been released yet. And that product (laughs) was the Amazon Look, which was finally announced in April. In a Medium article you wrote shortly after that, uh, after the product was released, you said that the decision to work on the project was a turning point in your career. So can you talk about why you decided to take on that project and some of the challenges of working on a top secret you know, project like that and, and how it has changed the course of your career? Absolutely. So, you know, it's I, the turning point in my career happened around 2014. I'd been working on something I was really passionate for a couple of years on and it uh, got canceled. You know, and, and many designers can empathize with that sort of struggle at some point in their career, something you just poured your heart and soul to into just stops existing. Uh, And a a couple of opportunities sort of started making themselves known. And the funny thing was, because I had been on a project for two years that didn't ship, my main, what I thought was my main criteria for selecting my next opportunity was, uh, was shipping products, like finding a team where I could ship quickly. And, And when I went to interview at Amazon, they had me on a split loop and they didn't, I didn't actually know much about the teams I was interviewing with when I went there. It was one of those things where a you know, friend mentioned that there was there was an opportunity and, and we went went ahead and made the, made the conversation. But what ended up happening was they gave me two offers. One of them was for uh, the Fire TV, uh, designing for the Fire TV. And one of them was for a project they could tell me nothing about, uh, except that they were interested in my voice design experience. And I was kind of... Um, <laughs> I was kind of attracted to the Fire TV option at first because because it would ship and and I knew especially having come gone through a project cancellation that kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, uh, and and having worked in the games industry too, there's no project is guaranteed a, a life after design. So, uh, but Eva Manolis, who was the uh, vice president in charge of the sort of incubation project, there was a concept lab at Amazon, and they had come come up with the idea for the Avatar look. She was very convincing, and she managed to to sell the project in the right way. It's like I think you are the right person for this project. I just need you to take a leap of faith, and um, that way, and and to be perfectly honest, there were just certain things that that. There were other goals I had that were being met by that project. I had been interested in natural user interfaces for a long time. And when they made it clear that I would get to work on natural user interfaces, that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, Eva has a great history in the tech industry. Oh, she, you know, she was founder of Shutterfly. She used to work at Silicon Graphics. So I was really excited to work directly with someone with that kind of history in the tech industry. Um, and I, I am very curious about large organizations and large corporations, Amazon being one of them. And I was curious about kind of seeing how they would approach new product because I, the Echo, but the interesting extra context there is that the Echo hadn't come out yet (laughs) (laughs) and no one knew about it. So I was really confused. Like, what do you mean you want me to do voice design at Amazon? (laughs) Oh yeah. Wow. It's hard to remember already a time before the, the uh, Amazon Echo didn't exist, honestly, because I have one and it's so already so much a part of you know, our daily life that it just seems like it's been around forever. So it's, it's hard to imagine what you must have been thinking at that time without that already in existence. I thought it was a big risk, but uh, it seemed like at least, it, at least if nothing else, I would be able to learn from Eva and I would be able to learn about how Amazon approached new product. Cause yeah, and I loved my Kindle that I loved my Kindle for years. So that I was very excited to maybe kind of see a little bit about how, how that sausage was made. And so it ended up being that, you know, and there's other, it, whenever somebody considers a career move, there's other things like I, it was, meant I could stay in Seattle. It meant certainly other career considerations to take into account. So it ended up working out, but it was at first, <laughs> it was not my first instinct. So what was it in your article? You, you kind of gave some advice to designers on, you know, what it's like to work on a secret project that you can't talk about. Like, what were some of the challenges there? Um, and maybe some advice you'd give to others who might be thinking about taking on a, a project like that or are working on one right now? Well, and it's it's a great question. And, and I don't know as I the Windows Automotive project I worked on wasn't fully 
quote unquote tented, but it was it was kind of hush hush. And so that was I thought I was prepared, but this was I had never exper- experienced anything truly this sort of secretive. And as a designer, that the being cut off and unable to talk about what you're working on, it, it cuts off a part of your process in in a way that it is a little disorienting. Like you cannot openly go to customers and ask them questions. You cannot openly go to other designers and ask them questions. And sometimes you can't even ask general questions without causing some kind of curiosity and alarm. Like before the Echo came out, I went and said, "Hey, I work." If my, you know, my colleagues knew that I worked at Amazon now, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm doing voice user interface design, and I'm looking for reference." People jump to conclusions very quickly. Uh, you know, there's a ton of stories about how uh, how a passive reference in a LinkedIn, uh, you know, somebody's LinkedIn bio leads somebody to to conjecture about the next big thing at a company, and so you 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 get really good at solo research, or you have to to survive. And you really need to get connected with whatever intrinsically motivates you because you're not going to be able to go to crits and get like to get, uh, you know, validation or uh, or support or valid other insights from other designers. For the most part, Uh, you're going to have to find other ways to gut check yourself to make sure that you're considering all perspectives to make sure that you're you you don't have any blind spots. It, It certainly makes things a lot more challenging. And it creates a weird sort of career tension where you know you're on the cutting edge of something and you can't tell anyone. You go to conferences and you want to talk to them about it. And if your product doesn't ship or it hasn't shipped yet, even when you're interviewing for your next job, you end up in this weird situation where you can't really share everything you've learned without tipping your hand. Um, and, you know, certainly, and I'm, you know, at, since since the Echo Look project, I I ended up back at Microsoft, which was also a strange turn of events. And and that definitely bore, it, it sort of was a factor in that round of interviewing was the fact that I couldn't talk about my work on anything related to the Echo Look or Alexa, because none of it had released yet. And so sometimes it means that you're, you're like, you're interviewing, your ability to go out and capitalize on your career is delayed by up to a couple years if you're on a hardware project. Well, in this, in, in this industry, when you can't talk about a project, do, do you think that maybe makes you even more desirable that they think that you're must mean you're working on something, you know, pretty amazing? Or is it just hard? Like just you, I, I can't imagine what that interview process was like when you couldn't talk about what you're working on for the last two years. Well, I actually don't think in general it makes you more desirable. I don't think it hurts your desirability if you had a strong portfolio before. And that's like why in my, my article, I kind of, you know, especially going through this process, my counsel to junior designers would be don't jump straight into new projects. Because when I was interviewing for my next job, I had to fall back on the strength of my earlier portfolio. I could not point to my Amazon work. The other thing that being cut off for up to several years does is it cuts off your ability to network effectively. Uh, you have to get really creative. Like if you want to stay relevant and you want to uh, le- keep learning, um, you ca- you're in this sort of asymmetrical networking relationship where you can't really offer any of your experiences from the last couple of years or any of your knowledge, or you have to do it very strategically. And it's also, you know, it was, it was a real challenge coming in as a new employee to Amazon and at large companies, it's important to get like your work out there to get, you know, spot, you know, executive sponsorship and, and buy-in, but you're literally disallowed from discussing your work with more than a group of 40 people in a company of you know, 150,000. Uh, that's, oh, no. it's very, uh, there's a real, uh, it's a, it's a double-edged sword there. So, uh, you know, over time we gradually increased the scope of who was allowed to talk about the project. And it was always such a relief when another <laughs> designer got added to the disclosure list. I'm like, Oh my God, I have so much to talk to you about. <laughs> <laughs> Please look at all this and tell me I'm not crazy. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the research because you said it, it was really difficult to do research on a product that that isn't released. And if you, it's, you don't want to give any clues about what you're working on, you mentioned doing a solo research. And that brings me like, to one of my next questions. So so Amazon touts the Echo Look as a hands-free camera and style assistant, and it uses AI to, to rate outfits and provide style advice, which is kind of a, an interesting, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting feature to focus on. And I, I'm wondering, like, you know, who who did you see as the audience for this product when you were develop, designing for it? And, and what kind of user research informed those design decisions as you were putting it together? Yeah, um, I, it was it was really ref- uh, 
really energizing coming onto the project, even though it was by the, when I came onto the project, I was employee number three, you know, there's Evo Sutor ran the project and then um, Maggie McDowell and Robert Zayner were the other two employees on the project at the time. Um, and they had started the ethnography process. So the, the project up until that point had been sort of a blue sky pitch. It had met with some early interest from Jeff. And so the next goal by this, when I joined the project was validate some of our hypotheses with ethnographic research. However, we could not let on that we were Amazon or what we, we were very hardcore about making sure that no one knew what our goal was. You know, we, we kind of had this idea for this, you know, this computer vision based assistant uh, to, to help with fashion decisions and things like that. But we, it, we didn't want to put that idea in people's heads. All we wanted to do was talk to people about their relationship with clothing, their uh, relationship with their self-image and getting, you know, getting dressed and choosing clothing uh, and find any potential pain points. So we took a step back from our core idea just to go get the lay of the land. And it's, I'm always, it's always lovely to see when companies take the time to invest in that gut check instead of just like running whole hog towards, uh, towards something. Cause the outcome of this process might've been that there was no market for this product. We, we had to, to kind of go in that, go in with that, those eyes open, but what, and you know, like, ethnography I love the process of ethnography and like talking one on one with people and hearing about their experiences and there were a surprising number of pain points uh that I didn't even necessarily expect you know the over my two two years kind of working on the echo look a lot of time to think about clothing and fashion and like how my career got there uh, and at first it's like wow is this you know I went from like cars and life and death stuff to fashion and that was a little bit of a 180 but you know, there's a there's a wide spectrum between, you know, pajamas and couture. And in the middle, there's a lot of tension. Uh, a lot of people want to put their best self forward. Not everybody has trusted friends or family who can give them advice. Uh, those people who do feel fairly fashion uh, sort of forward feel pressure to keep up. Um, there's a ton of like body self-consciousness and dysmorphia and all kinds of stuff wrapped up in a lot of these decisions. Uh, and that happens on a daily basis. It's like paper cuts. You know, you're making every morning you have to face all of these demons. What should I wear? What image do I want to project to other people? Am I projecting my best self? Um, and what starts out maybe seeming frivolous to some folks really has a lot of deep meaning to a lot of customers. And certainly in early ethnography, we were skewing female, although we talked to some men also, and there were also pain points, you know, similar things. Although, you know, they kind of had different struggles, like they had a narrower window of fashion in which to work. <laughs> and they had some different concerns, but some of them were the same, you know, wanting to present your best self or you're going out, especially dating. Oh, goodness. Anybody who is actively <laughs> dating, lots of fashion tension and that that need for kind of immediate feedback. Like you, you don't always plan your dating wardrobe in advance, but getting taking a good picture of your I mean, we've all seen the duck face selfies in the mirror, right? Like there's a whole category of folks who aren't posing for for social media selfies who are actually like trying to get feedback on whether or not they look decent enough to impress somebody like there's just so much there. Uh, so we did several weeks of ethnography uh, in New York and LA and Seattle visiting people in their homes, looking at their closets, documenting their closets, taking like measurements of their closets. Um, and we did this with an external firm to maintain anim anonymity, but we sent a team member out to each of the, the, each of the studies so that we could get that personal sense of context. Then when we switched into more pre-production mode, it got a lot more challenging because it was, it was a secret project limited to 20 to 40 people, depending on the point in the prototyping process. And so when we wanted to test things, we could only test them with at first with those other 20 to 40 people. <laughs> uh, but so you really had to rely on the people who had been disclosed on the project early on to give feedback. Like it, it was really limited. And so we developed a coping mechanism for later on to find employees that we could bring into the disclosure circle who matched our profile. And we actually, uh, we put a, uh, basically a selfie booth up in uh, the building that we worked in. And we, there's an Amazon cultural thing with a phone tool icon you get for participating in things that help the the company culture. And so we, we were, we offered a phone tool icon if you took 10 selfies with this selfie booth. And, um, that helped us identify custom, like the employees who engaged with that beyond the phone tool. 
that gave us a, a, like an inkling, like they would, they might be people who would be interested in participating in our research and would match our profile. Because it's really tough. You don't want to just test with a bunch of average software developers on a product like this, because you would probably get the same reaction that you get from tech bloggers right now, which is a little bit WTF. Why is Amazon <laughs> releasing this thing? <laughs> so we had to like, find, and those people were there. We just had to find a way to find them without disclosing our plans. I need to back up just for a minute because yeah, I, I, this research is kind of fascinating to me. So when you were doing all the research for the, for, you know, to discover the pain points of, of people, were there any like unexpected things you discovered? Was there anything surprising that uh, commonality you found that, that, that really surprised you? I mean, I don't think it's too surprising to think that it can be stressful to pick out an outfit that makes you look good before you go out. But was there, you know, was there anything like just really surprising? Yeah, there were a couple of things. Uh, one thing that made me feel better personally, uh, which is not the goal of the ethnography, but still, um, was the fact that many of the folks we talked to were spread, their wardrobes were spread across multiple rooms. And so when we first talked about this project, and, and one of the little, the lesser documented features of the look is the ability, the, the ability to catalog your wardrobe. And immediately, a lot of folks who are maybe not as fashion engaged or just not really immersing themselves in the problem be like, well, why do you need to do that? You could just look at your closet. And it's kind of, but then you go and talk to people who live in New York City or in an urban area, live in a very small apartment, they are rotating their wardrobe out to storage. So when they're shopping for winter clothes, their winter clothes haven't come out of storage yet and they don't actually know what they have. Um, they can't remember. They end up buying duplicates. And even folks who don't have that rotation mechanic, like there was a lot of, well, the master bedroom has most of my clothes and then they overfilled into my kid's room. And also this, uh, you know, we had to use a couple of chests of drawers. And so there's no, there's literally no way to see all your clothes at once. And you easily start to forget things. And and when we started using the device ourselves, once we had it, uh, or once we had at least the, the little sort of selfie machine, um, the extension of that finding, right? Like, so if you can't see all your clothes and you start forgetting about things, adding a device like the look and using it regularly means that you finally have that ability to look back at what you have and you actually kind of start to spend less on clothing for a while, uh, which is count <laughs> counter to what I think everybody might expect from it. Like it, if you buy it and use it for a while, I found this, like you start to find new ways to engage with clothing. And you remember, I actually don't need any more black pants. We are fine. Like we have plenty <laughs> of them and they look fine. Do not buy those on sale. Uh, so there's that mechanic. And so there's this kind of dip, I think. And obviously the, the look is very new. And so we're not going to see this for a while. But I think a lot of people will actually save money on clothes for a while as they learn to get the most out of what they already have. And either, and definitely, you know, I felt that maybe feel better. I saw a couple of folks who were like, uh, yeah, my husband only gets half a closet. I'm like, okay, so I might not be the only one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think the the other thing that was really interesting that we saw over the course of the research was we kind of assumed that giving people access to selfies like this, you know, this full head to toe selfie would encourage a lot of public sharing. But when you really at talk to folks about their fashion habits, that's not necessarily the case. There's not this ton. There's not tons of pent up desire that's to post head to toe selfies to social media. <laughs> no. There is a lot of pent up desire to share those images with trusted friends and family. Like, and so when we talked to people and dug into it, it was like, no, I actually wouldn't post this to Instagram. I would use it all the time to send to my mom or my sister who lives across the country or my best friend when, right before I'm going out on a date or my boyfriend who's, you know, somebody's you know, boyfriend or significant other. You know, we, you start uncovering all these stories like long distance relationships, people who are separated for a long time, but pregnant moms who want to die. Like there's all this emergent kind of like self-documentation stuff, self-journaling and sharing with trusted friends. But it didn't cause this like explosion of narcissism, which I was worried about <laughs> when I started. I was like, I'm building a self-image. We are building a self-image machine. Um, that's going to be our, but it, it, that's not how customers really wanted to use it. And it was, it was eye-opening and, and, and like really hard, like kind of heartwarming to some of these stories about how folks really just wanted to connect with a couple of trusted folks and get that kind of trusted feedback. It was bringing people together, not just making the story about the person who owns the look. That's really nice to hear. That helps me affirm my belief in humanity. Thank you for <laughs> making me think people are, 
are actually heartwarming, good people. That's nice. Um, but that brings up a different issue. Not does, it actually doesn't bring up an issue. I I, I like that you're that you're concerned about um, not promoting narcissism. That's a very good goal for designers. Another another goal that I want to talk about. Another maybe issue to consider when you're designing is is a as designer's responsibility to I don't know society. Um, brings up another Amazon product. And I know you're not like the expert on Amazon. You don't even work there anymore. But Amazon just released um, the Echo Show. And it has a new feature called Drop-In that uh, lets pre-approved users activate the video and audio on another person's device and just you know drop in on them. And even even when they're not there, I think, is, is what I read. And um, people are calling it creepy. And it's raising some interesting privacy issues. So what do you think of that feature? And do you feel like designers have a responsibility to design for privacy, which is, I think, one of the biggest issues surrounding um, the, the, the Echo products. When it first came out, and, e and even now, is people, you know, as a designer, are you concerned about ensuring people's privacy? Is that something you should be thinking about when you're creating products? Well, I absolutely think that designers should be considering all these questions, both, you know, personal ethic, but also like how your products fit into your customers' ethical structures. And I certainly don't hold it against anybody who's like, the echo's too weird for me. I don't want a microphone in my house. I'm like, you know what? That is totally right. And I think if, so, you know, from a, from a corporate perspective, it's like, if you want to work with Nui, which re relies on cameras and microphones and these weird, more humane interaction methods that do potentially represent a privacy evasion. The first thing you have to ask yourself is, is how laser focused are you on an actual legitimate customer problem? <laughs> you have to be solving a legitimate customer problem. And, you know, if you if you kind of dig into the Echo Show and the drop-in feature, the customer problem, one of the ones they're really passionate about is uh, connecting extended families, especially uh, elderly customers. And and if you kind of dig into and this is also like if you dig into the comments on the Echo itself, um, one of the things that really set the Echo apart when it came out compared to, you know, smartphones or other technologies available in the market at the time was the way it changed lives with its it, with its more inclusive accessibility sort of story. Like people who were mobility impaired or people who were vision impaired could still interact with the device successfully. And that means that. Uh, the sort of the echo has a better sort of penetration amongst, uh, you know, folks in the second half of their lives than your typical uh, sort of early technology release, uh, significantly so. And so you start to hear, but you also start to hear that other side of the story, like maybe, you know, my, I put an echo in my, my parents' house and it's working out really well, but I'm concerned they're getting older and I just want to check in on them sometimes, you know, they, or they, they're not answering the phone and I really just want to look and make sure they're okay. Or, you know, these these families who are across the country, these be, so I feel like the Echo Show started with the core customer problem of I have I think that elder care kind of thing was like the really core killer feature. Like you have somebody in your family and you need a better way to provide some kind of care or service for them without living there. That transitional time between like hopefully folks don't have to go into assisted living. But if they, but, but between then, there's a lot of stress. You know, my my husband's mother had dementia for years. And if we had had the ability to check in on her and even with her nurse there uh, remotely, we probably would have invested in a product like this. And you start, and you weigh that privacy concern when you're deciding whether or not this satisfies your personal like need. Uh, in a way that justifies the potential risk. Now, that said, I, I wouldn't have kept working at Amazon if I didn't personally believe that they were committed to a, a very high standard of hardware security. They really, really cared about customer uh, customer trust. I mean, that is Amazon's core value proposition is trust, really. If the trust is violated, uh, Amazon ceases to exist. People trust them to deliver things quickly. People trust them uh, to, enough to put echoes in their homes. So they know <laughs> they only get one shot at this. And so I saw that kind of come to bear in the development of the software. And it, and there's other things too, like it, the way it's kind of pitched is like the camera just lights up all the time. But there's actually like, they put a lot of work into sort of a progressive disclosure method for the video drop-in. So it's not like a live camera. It's like, I, I, I believe they're, do I, I saw something in the video where they're kind of like, 
sort of frosted glass at first, so you can't make out specific features while the other person decides whether to consent to the, the you know, the exchange. Uh, I know they spent a lot of time on that particular mechanic, but it's it's a it's a meaty topic, and uh, it's a lot of folks try to just tell consumers that security is important and you should just never do anything that's unsecure, uh, you know, but that's, it's not really helpful. It's not meeting customers where they are. It's about like helping them secure the things that they need or want to live their lives. Like how can they be the most secure given that they really decided that they do want a voice activated assistant because their mobility impaired or it just helps uh, with their daily life. Uh, what are the responsible ways they can, they can deal with that? What, Folks who would come out and talk, you know, a great way for designers to help with this problem is maybe a third party sort of view of the security me uh, metrics that all of these different companies, Google and Amazon and Microsoft use for like storing your data, transcribing your conversations or not are, you know, are sound, the sound files stored and for how long, um, how the wake words work. You know, I know Amazon's Alexa wake word it doesn't go to the cloud until it hears its wake word. So that perception that it's always listening is a little bit misguided because it's listening, but literally only capable of hearing one word at first. Actually, it responds to Alyssa too. My son has has tested out the, he watched the the parody on Saturday Night Live um, where they were, <laughs> where, they, where they had the, the echo for, for older people. And so now he, he's always yelling at it, but he, he was calling it Alyssa. And she, and it, yeah, I, call, I called it she, which I know is not right, but um, it does turn on to that. So Alexa is something and, close And to that's Alexa. fair. You know, there certainly are false positives. <laughs> um, and I got, I loved that sketch so very much. Uh, and what was really remarkable to me as somebody who designed for Alexa was like, they went to the trouble to to mock up the light ring the way it would actually look when you're like they they clearly use the product like I've seen a lot of parodies where it's like they just have but like it was a weirdly loving parody <laughs> oh uh, but yeah that's true and and you know everybody's got to make their personal decision about and it's funny the, the the her thing right it's not wrong or right like it's a human way of coping with conversational inter interfaces and the way our brain sort of files those it's very to, difficult to, to, call, to call it an it it definitely it it's human my my instinct is definitely to refer to her as a it as a her but I, when do you think they'll start developing devices with male voices uh, that's a really interesting question and it's a really culturally charged question so we're, what we're seeing right now is a fairly uh, all the voice assistants are being sort of birthed in American culture, right? Like in the states, in the mainland, that's where these products are releasing first. And you know, there's a there's some really good research out there, particularly. I mean, it's by American researchers, but it takes into account some of the global differences. But the way our gender perception influences our perception of digital assistance, and when I got really into natural user interfaces. One of my managers on Windows Automotive had re recommended I went go and read Clifford Nass, uh, who is a researcher at Stanford, who uh, did a ton of work on like how people perceive digital interfaces when they are gendered. And the fascinating thing was that there was cognitive dissonance when a gendered voice talked about a subject that was not perceived to be in that gender's area of strength. So, for example, if you had a woman talking about the inventory at Home Depot, there was cognitive dissonance. You know, if you had a man talking about fashion, that was cognitive dissonance. And so if you're a company and you're trying to release a product that's going to be very disruptive and cause privacy concerns, you want to you want to. I, I, and I did not work in the initial release of the Echo. So this is this is me talking on myself and not on behalf of any company. But my guess is that uh, if you're a company looking to make this really disruptive wave, you have to minimize cognitive dissonance elsewhere to get people to open their mind to a microphone in their home. And for America, what the, and the features that they planned for Alexa, I think what that meant was a lot, the context they knew that Alexa would be used in was largely uh, the kitchen, like kitchen timers are super popular, alarms, like household management stuff. It would be a little cognitive dissonance based on American culture, good or bad, right? Like I, I wish it, that we were just super gender neutral. <laughs> uh -huh. But the fact of the, the market here is that, that that cognitive dissonance exists. It's real. And so if you have this uh, th this home-oriented product in America, you kind of have to start with a female voice. It wasn't, a, I don't believe the decision was made because people perceive 
women is subservient or because it's an assistant. And in a weird way, I think it may actually pay off in the long run because people will be more comfortable. These assistants are going to be the vanguard of our connection to a larger uh, breadth of artificial intelligence. And so these these assistants will over time become less sort of dumb bots and more really intelligent uh, agents. And they'll be associated with the female gender and hopefully will kind of transcend these these stereotypes. But there's, you know, Cliff Nass also brought up like uh, he used to work with a bunch of automotive companies, including some in Germany. And there was an incident uh, with one of the German automakers he worked with where they released a navigation system with a female voice. And they ended up having to recall that software because they got so many complaints from German drivers that they did not want to accept directions from a woman. And so there's that cultural difference in, and like the cognitive dissonance of the gender thing again. And so like if you release in Germany for the first time, would it be different than if you released in America? Uh, would you? So it could be that eventually one of these companies wants to break into a culture where a male voice would be perceived as more authoritative or more welcome. And that's when we start to see what a male assistant voice. It could just be that the demand sort of gets out there um, and and we start to see female voices. But it's it's really complicated cultural question. And when I was working on the Alexa team, we did have conversations and, and I don't think we ever came to a satisfying answer like, you know, there's if you study linguistics, there are certain patterns of use of pronouns and verbs and adverbs that are associated with being feminine. And is it our responsibility to match people's expectations of a female voice? Or is it our responsibility ethically to like challenge those perceptions by making it a non-traditional, uh, non-feminine sort of grammar construct? It's like kind of when you start thinking about it, like, oh, God, I really don't know how to answer that question yet. And hopefully some folks will experiment in this space. So many new issues for designers to consider when they're making products. That that's I know you give a pretty popular workshop on on how to design for voice user interfaces. So how can visual designers start designing for voice? What are some of the key concepts they they need to understand? Words or concepts, you know, how, how do they get started? What's the most important thing to know? Well, and the first thing I would tell folks is just remember that those of us who have participated in voice design or considered voice designers didn't really do voice design years ago. It's not something I was taught at Carnegie Mellon. We worked on Palm Pilots. That's what they were teaching at the time. So, you know, don't self-select out just because you don't have that experience yet. You know, the folks who became mobile design experts didn't self-select out because they'd never designed for an iPhone before. No one had designed for an iPhone before. Uh, there are some folks who haven't had start because they started out general, a lot of times in computer science and linguistics and sort of made the transition to design uh, because that was needed. But I think if, and, and you have to understand where you want to fall on the spectrum. If you truly, you are motivated by visual design, making a transition to being a full-fledged voice designer may not be for you because you don't touch a lot of Photoshop. I spent <laughs> I spent my year on Alexa. I didn't I don't didn't use Illustrator or Photoshop. It was very strange. But um, you know, so if if that's you, you may want to focus on multimodal interfaces like the Echo Show. Go start spending time with that. Understand how personality is conveyed, how the relationship between the system and what's being spoken so that you can have that level of conversation with the folks working on those products and, and kind of pitch yourself in that way. If you are drawn to natural user interfaces and you do want to dive deep on voice and maybe throw away your copy of Illustrator, then the, you, you're going to need to fall back on your information architecture skills first and foremost, because a, a lot of your time is spent building out the flows that represent the customer's journey through the conversation and what different actions can be taken at each step during the conversation. Um, and a lot of time is spent at that stage because about, it, it, yes, it's a very rough generalization, but it more so than in traditional GUI design where you kind of spend about 80% of your time working on the core cases and then 20% on errors. On voice design, it's really the opposite. You spend about 20% of your time working on core cases because a lot of times they're just magical. Like Alexa just set a timer for 15 minutes. It just works. But uh, what doesn't always work is Alexa set a timer for or set, Alexa, wake me up tomorrow morning. That's not enough information for her to do the alarm. We got to figure out how to get enough information for her to set the alarm. So you spend a lot of time working on malformed inputs, incomplete inputs, uh, you know, changes, uh, confusing concepts and uh, adapting to things like accents and gender, all kinds of stuff like that. So um, and then what you'll probably have to learn unless you 
are lucky enough to have had experience in this sort of thing is a bit more of content design, a bit more comfortable, comfort and familiarity with things like creative writing, writing for a person that is not yourself. Uh, and so if, if that's something you're not comfortable with, maybe take a screenwriting class or a playwriting class uh, or just start reading plays a little bit more or take an improv class to get comfortable with kind of storytelling. But, uh, you know, on Alexa, the voice designers were the front line for content. They had content designers, but a lot of times it was our responsibility to handle most of the writing and then they would help us with the the really rough stuff or the edge cases or consistency or things like that but and as voice design sort of spreads itself out amongst the design community uh, you're not going to have a one-to-one content designer voice designer ratio so you're going to need to be comfortable enough to write good crisp dialogue that is actually great advice people have said you know i've heard for you know a long time to be successful you need to be able to write you need to be able to speak uh, you can't just rely on your design skills you have to have all these other skills you might not feel are natural to you but this is uh, interesting to see that you need to know how to do creative writing to be able to design these interfaces i hadn't thought of that but um it makes sense yeah, it's this weird hybrid of creative and technical writing. It's somewhere in the middle. Like the creative part is the personality, um, which you don't want in every <laughs> you don't want in every utterance. I want to be very clear about you don't want every prompt to be full of personality. <laughs> <laughs> that's another thing we talk about. We could go on for hours about personality and uh, when it's appropriate. Oh, we could, and I want to. Maybe that can be our next conversation. That's so fascinating. Like, I think that probably is the next step, right? Building personality into these. Um in these voice activated devices. And I think, wasn't there a new feature that Amazon just released that, that a lot of whispering? Is it like- They've added the ability to control some of the sort of inflection and tenor of her voice. Uh, when And there's a markup language called SSML, which allows you to mark up text with speech characteristics. And so I think they've extended their SSML markup to reflect things like have these words be whispered. I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's it's much more concise than saying have these words be whispered. But, you know, so you can mark certain por- por- portions of the text and you can use SSML to indicate places where you really need a vowel to get hit in a certain way because though every synthetic voice technology is a little bit different and it's very proprietary. The way Alexa generates her real-time text-to-speech is different than Cortana's and different than Google's and it's based on different core content. And so... As a voice designer, you would sometimes find that like you you put your text into the text to speech system and it would come out weird. Like she'd get really uppity uh, like, <laughs> up, uh, upbeat about a word that should not be upbeat in that context. <laughs> like there's going to be thunder today or something. Like why why is she doing that? And so you have to use SSML to kind of like get it to get her to calm down. So this gives you more control over that sort of thing. You know, being able to do up inflection at the end of certain sentences could mean a, have a big impact on how she's perceived. I haven't seen it used terribly much, but I think they might have used it. And again, I don't work for them anymore, so I don't know about the back end stuff. But I I do use the home. I use Alexa. A lot at home and for the home automation stuff, small changes like she when you say turn on the lights, she says, OK, but she used to say it very specifically. OK, it was very kind of flat. But now uh, in the last week or two, they changed that. So she goes, OK, uh, like this, like she's excited to be doing it. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, it's 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 a different it's a different emotion just from kind of going up on the end of that very short word. Now, you could argue that maybe it's a little bit artificial to be excited the thousandth time you've turned my lights on. <laughs> Maybe they need to be a bit more random about it. But I think it is in general a little bit more human. Uh, it's a little bit more of an improvement. I keep asking all these questions about Amazon, but you don't work there anymore. So I want to maybe move on as you have had with your life and um, talk to you a little bit about what you're doing now. What what took you from Amazon back to Microsoft? What are you working on that that's interesting, exciting today? So in a little bit of context, when I made the switch, so I I worked on the Echo Look for the first year, you know, from original storyboards to Jeff Bezos to uh, the point where we had the business requirements and uh, documents, which are essentially uh, both the, the reference documents used by the factories and the development team to build a hardware product. So we got to that stage and they were going to shift it to production. And that's when I made the switch to Alexa. And I worked in the Alexa team for a year. Um. Uh, but they got reorged and, you know, uh, you know, to be perfectly blunt, like we, if we go back to what I mentioned originally, wanting to ship product, mm-hmm. I was, I do not regret going to Amazon for a second. I learned so much. And this whole voice design journey has, has been so, and not just voice product design, working on the Echo Look, I was working on all of it and it was really fulfilling. But I did, you know, I did get to the point where everything I was working on was still on a t- one to two year timeline. Mm. 
And I was just really hungry to work on some features where I could get immediate customer feedback and I could talk to other designers. Um, There was also a little bit, I really wanted, I saw this need because we kept interviewing people for voice design and um, I couldn't talk about it because I was working on it at Amazon and it was like, there was too much of a risk I would betray secrets. Uh, So I needed to separate myself from that to do what I do now, which is teach my workshop and kind of go around the world uh, sharing what I've learned and what I've been taught by awesome folks like Tomato Kirskagar over at, at Amazon and Lisa Stifelman over at Microsoft. There's some fantastic folks who have shared their knowledge with me. And I wanted to do that also, but I needed some space. And I, I it's going to sound weird, maybe, uh, to some folks, but I, I've always, always, have always liked the server space. It's, there's these really complex problems. And to me, it's really appealing that you are making it easier for the architects of the internet to do their work and to do more innovative things. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of value and nobility in doing that. Um, and I, I love tough problems and Azure has nothing but tough problems. And so that was, that was kind of, they, and they were, when I started talking to them, it was very clear that they were on an aggressive agile schedule with a number of partner teams. So there was no question I would be shipping stuff quickly and having a broad impact. We have something like 80 partner teams who do extensions into Azure. And I, you know, part of my job when I came onto the Azure team was come up with a way to communicate a rapidly changing set of guidelines to all 80 partner teams. Uh, so that's that's been a great challenge. And, and I have sort of been able to feed that hunger of immediate contact with customers. We're doing usability tests every week with live customers and, and we can be a little bit more public about our work. And so it was just, it was feeding a different part of my designer sort of soul. Uh, and, and that change was, was motivating to me. And you never know, like, I definitely view careers as a journey and not a place in time. Like having worked in video games, I've almost gone back to video games once or twice. Those skills are there and maybe I will fall back on them again. My voice design skills are there and there's a really strong uh, chance that I will be using those sooner rather than later in this context or some, some other context. So, and I use it all the time in my speaking. So I don't feel like it looks strange from the outside, but when you look at it in the terms of a career, it, it's a little less strange than in the moment. These sorts of these sorts of big changes, like I went from video games to servers, servers to cars, cars to to Alexa and fashion technology, and now back to server. And like that's, I kind of find those those changes refreshing. How do you do that? How do you switch industries? Like you you've worked in so many different very different types of fields. How do you build a career that lets you make those kinds of switches? Well, for designers in particular, you need to, you, early career designers, the best way you can prepare yourself for the first switch is to document your process. And that starts in school if you're studying design in school. When I interviewed at Microsoft the first time, I had been a you know a lead producer on video games for years. And there was a little bit of like, what the, why are you interviewing with the system center team? <laughs> and it's like, and so what the, what, what sold my, my case was that, I had, you know, and Carnegie Mellon is a fantastic design program and and I highly recommend taking a look at it. But even in its early days, they really instilled in us the, the need to document our process and the way we think. Like a portfolio presentation is not just a bunch of final screenshots. It needs to carry your potential employer along to see how you make decisions, respond to external stimuli like research studies and adapt over time. And so I was able to do that with uh, like documentation for my senior project and also applying that same logic to the design work I did do in the game, you know, uh, in my video game career, because I did a lot of game design and game design is essentially just interaction design where you're being intentionally difficult instead of intentionally easy. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, I could reframe and I did some also UI design, but I kind of reframed things in that way. I'm like, hey, you know the lead producer on this brand new title for Disney. And here's how we handled user testing and user feedback. Here's some flows I did for the, you know, for our multiplayer lobby and that experience. Here's a little insight. That was the first time I ever did voice design. So, and it was just like a 20 word grammar, but I get brought them along on that part of the journey. Like here's how I dealt with the completely new input modality. And that was what kind of sold it. So you need to expose your fundamentals if you're looking to make a, a jump into a different uh, industry. And it takes a little bit of fearlessness. Like you're going to have to look at job openings and be like that because they're going to say they want people with experience, whatever industry they're in. They are going to say that because sure, they think they want that. Uh, but often a fresh perspective is actually good. And if you are energized by learning, if you are, which I am, you know, 
switching to a new industry is like, oh my God, there's so much, I can't wait to find out more about like, I loved learning about the automotive industry and how that process worked and how car makers worked and the CAN bus and like how, how that private network between all of your car components worked. It was fascinating, but I couldn't get hired onto that team with that knowledge. I had to fall back on, you know, my fundamentals, the speed at which I learn and a strong process. You describe yourself in your bio as a 20-sided woman. And I think that applies in many aspects to your life, to your career, and also to, well, in your in your description, you say you're a designer, you're an actress, teacher, world traveler, writer, gamer, all of these things. And you, um, you know, on the side, I know you are a professional actress, specializing in comedy, hosting, voiceover work, which I imagine plays into some of your voice design. How these other interests, the acting, how has that helped your design career? Well, the most direct ways, uh, it's, and, and I do a lot, I've, over the years, I've spent a lot of time specializing in imp- improvisational uh, comedy and drama. And, you know, it, I, I've loved musical theater and I've loved video work, but doing the improvisational work has direct impacts on how you handle conversations, how you approach problem solving, how you approach question and answer sessions at conferences. The more you study improv, the more you learn that the world is not full of right and wrong answers. There are lots of different ways to answer a question, like just taking questions and answers, for example. I feel like when I'm at conferences and I get tough Q&A, that that improv training where it's like there is there are there are just a number of ways to handle this situation. None of them are wrong. There is an answer. Just have faith in your ability to find it and uh, and to listen. That's the other thing. A lot of improv training is about listening to people, starting to understand their motivation. Um, that's that's a very valuable skill. And I will be the first to admit that early in my career, I was not great at listening. I wanted to be right, and you know, I was as guilty as the next person of, of like waiting for the other person to finish speaking so I could speak. And improv helps you get past that. And it also, you know, there's other ancillary benefits, especially like you mentioned for voice UI, like working on scripted shows. I've done a little bit of script writing myself. That whole, that all fed into to doing writing for voice UI, uh, particularly the editing process. Uh, anybody can write words. It takes a lot of focus to cut the right ones. And that goes back all the way to my, <laughs> that I've, fallen back on that part of my acting career since uh, my days on the Sims when I would write object text for the uh, Sims object catalog. And, you know, we had a certain number of words. It was just constant paring things down. Um, So those are those are two ways that the acting has sort of helped. But I also think teaching improv and this, you know, this is a longer journey. You can't just like jump into teaching improv. But I've learned a lot about myself, but also the other people around me through teaching improv, because it's one of the most vulnerable things you can do is go to your first improv class. And I see all of these adults making that brave step all the time. And when you connect with people at that level, you understand more about what motivates other people, uh, how to bring the best out of others in a vulnerable situation. And I think that's come back to my work as well, is is more empathy, more ability to see people as human beings with career goals and personal ethics and all of these things sort of wrapped up in 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 their day jobs too. So those are some ways that 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 uh that the acting is influenced. And it just, and it's a great network. Microsoft had a theater troupe for a long time. We're hoping to bring it back. That was great networking. Like it's great to go. And I'm a strong believer in work-life balance. I believe that, especially for designers, because I think you need that empathy. You need to connect with people who are not yourself. And your coworkers are essentially reflections of yourself. They're also designers or, or technologists for the most part. And acting has given me the ability to go and connect with so many people who are not me and see their perspectives. And that makes me a better designer when I come back to the workplace. I have really loved talking with you today. There's so much more I think we could talk about. We could talk for hours about your your work and all the the different in automotive and Disney and video games and, you know, just everything. But um but before we go, we always like to ask, you know, like what other products or people or what's going on in the industry now that you're excited about? You know, what should you know, what should we be looking at next? It's a it's a good question. It's obviously uh, my interest does continue to kind of focus on the the group, the impending intersection between sort of command and control voice UIs like Alexa and truly conversational UI and how those two will combine and all the ethics around personality and the emotional effects technology have on human beings and how that's going to evolve over time. There's just so much. And I think it's just going to keep changing is the thing, like which is the best kind of 
uh, learning and design challenge, the one that's just constantly fresh and constantly new. Because as people get used to Alexa, the way we perceive it's going to change and the things we thought were true five years ago won't be. I'm also really interested in augmented reality and VR, partially how they combine with natural user interfaces, gesture and voice. Um, I've been interested in gesture in a while, for a while, you know, the Wii came out, it's like, oh, this is really cool. We've, I've played with gesture on a couple of the projects I've worked on, but it's never really, uh, it's re- never really taken taken hold, but keeping an eye on all of that as it collides in the sort of augmented slash virtual reality spectrum. We get to play with virtual reality back in the early 2000s back at Carnegie Mellon. And it's like, it's funny that it's come full circle again and come around. But again, like all the emotional impact to people, uh, there's just such great potential there. Um, and with great power comes great responsibility. I think it's important for designers to engage early to make sure these things are used ethically and for the most value. But industries I'm interested in, you know, I'm you know very interested in the healthcare industry because of my personal sort of journey through life. And uh, I've, I, there's, uh, there's a couple of other design problems that have always intrigued me. Like, why, when you go to the airport to check in and you give your name, and my name is about, you know, it's, my name is 12 characters or maybe 11. I've never actually counted. But it, why does it take 50 characters to make that, to make that entry? Why does it take, <laughs> like, there's still so much opportunity for those folks. Uh, in the travel industry uh, for uh, to make those things more uh, more efficient. I, I, and I think all designers can empathize with that, constantly seeing those questions and those problems around you, like I'm constantly seeing them. And uh, there's there's always a, there's always interesting questions out there, but I'm really, really drawn to the ones that have emotional impact on our customers and and other human beings. Thank you so much for for joining us today on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Well, thank you so much, Nikki. Uh, uh, Folks can reach out to me online if they want. I'm very engaged on Twitter and and on Medium and uh, available for workshops if folks are interested. And I I hope we'll get to have future conversations. Thanks so much, Joe O'Reilly, for having me. Wait, tell them your your Twitter handle. I I should have asked and I didn't. (laughs) Uh, My Twitter handle is Muppet Aphrodite. (laughs) uh, Yes, I'm I'm an odd duck and so is my Twitter (laughs) handle. My very first job was at a theme park uh, Sesame Place where I played a character for three years. Um, and the Aphrodite part was a was a joke about how everybody, you know, because I was on early bulletin board systems and uh, I was generally the only girl and everyone just kind of assumed you were some kind of mythical, magical goddess. I'm like, I could be <laughs> a, like, they, like they try. and so it's just like a poke at the way uh, people freaked out every time a woman locked onto those boards. <laughs> It's like, what's the least Aphrodite like thing possible? Oh, the fact that I'm a Muppet. OK, great. <laughs> Okay. So you- I wanted to play with cognitive dissonance even at that age. <laughs> so people can find you on Twitter at Muppet Aphrodite. Um, and now we know why, uh, which is <laughs> yes. another question I had. And now, now, now I know. Um, okay. Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Nikki. You enjoy your weekend. Thank you for listening. You can find Cheryl on Twitter at Muppet Aphrodite. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and rate us in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.